Anyways, turn your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings 11. And uh, we've been looking at the story of Solomon this week. And here we see, uh, we'll look at his highs, uh, which really we spent some time on Wednesday night looking at his highs, uh, particularly as it regards to the building of his temple. Um, but we'll look at the highs today and we'll look, and particularly here in chapter 11, his low. First Kings chapter 11, you will stand with me, reverence for God's word, and we will read the first eight verses. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart, for when Solomon was owed, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abominations of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil on the side of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we ask, as always, to open our hearts and our minds and our eyes, ears and mouth, hands, feet, our entire being, body and soul, that we would be transformed by the gospel. And may we see here in Solomon the wisest of men, yet is numbered among the most foolish of them. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if you've noticed, and I trust you have, that most movies follow essentially the same sort of arc. I'm not just talking about beginning and uh, you know climax and resolution, that, that sort of stuff. I'm talking about in terms of the way the hero, the story of the hero. And the way it usually happens is, particularly in origin stories, is the hero has an event uh, where he has to make a decision that drives him towards being heroic. And along that journey, he fails or he gives up or something happens to where he thinks that maybe this isn't for me. And then what happens is eventually he overcomes that. So what you have then is, is uh, a, 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 he begins to rise and then he falls and then he rises again, wins the day, and they all lived happily ever after until the sequel at least. The Bible really does the opposite approach. It has the introductory story, and you have the rise of the hero, but often its conclusion is failure. David began his kingdom great, yet following events with Bathsheba, it didn't end too well. In fact, he is laying on his deathbed talking to his heir Solomon, asking Solomon to avenge him against his enemies. And we can look at countless other examples where they started off really well, but they didn't finish as well. Solomon is certainly numbered among them. Perhaps you've noticed this week in reading through these first 11 chapters of Kings that, that the writer goes out of his way to highlight the many successes of Solomon. A good summary of this is actually in chapter 10. Go down to verse 14, and we'll, we'll look at this quickly. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. See, the mark of the beast. There it is right there. 
There it is. You do with that whatever you want. Besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and from the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shells of beaten, beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield, and he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minus of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. He also made an ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of the step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, so much year by year. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. King had made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. He made cedar as plentiful as sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price, and a chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the king of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Now you're thinking there, that is overwhelming to take it all in because we don't know what half of that means. But it is significant. The reader wants you, or the writer wants the reader to see that, that, that Solomon's kingdom was vast, the greatest throughout all of Jewish history, particularly up to this point. In fact, we could break down Solomon's successes into three categories, and they're alliterated so you know it is of God. First of all, that is his wisdom, Solomon's wisdom. In chapter 4, it says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Like, you think he could have caught it off after 1,000? Just a good, even number? He had to add five more, overachieving. That, that just bothers me. But you notice the 3,000 proverbs, not all of them are in the book of Proverbs. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and birds and reptiles and of fish. People of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. The reason the, the natural world is so important there is because with wisdom came knowledge. And here we would speak of scientific knowledge. He understood the world that God created. Wisdom. We, we could say the same thing in chapter 10, that the report was true. Uh, this is uh, Queen of Sheba, of course. The report is true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Here what you have is the nations coming into Israel, fulfilling the very vision that is to be Israel. And what is it they find? They, see, they find the presence of God among the people of God who carry about the wisdom of God. So Solomon's wisdom is well established not to mention there's an entire book dedicated, actually multiple books dedicated to it. Don't skip Song of Solomon. Secondly, wealth. 
That's made very clear in this chapter 10 that we've read, but we can go back to chapter 4. Solomon's provision for one day, this is his grocery list, was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of milk. I don't know what a core is, but it sounds like a lot. 10 fat oxen, that'll feed a teenage boy. 20 pasture-fed cattle, that'll feed an entire youth group right there. A hundred sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. The only county to me, like, I wish I had that much deer in my backyard. You city people, we call, you might call those deers. But it's deer. Talk about a shopping list. Just wealth. In fact, we could add to this chapter 8 and 9, which explores the wealth of his kingdom as seen in the temple and as seen in his palace. And remember what we saw here in chapter 10. We said that silver wasn't known in Solomon's kingdom because there was so much gold. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Then there is the work of Solomon. After all, chapter 8, he builds the temple. Incredible work he accomplished. He built his palace, equally majestic. And he expanded his kingdom, not through war like David, but through diplomacy and wisdom and ability. Man had incredible wisdom, with it came wealth and great work. So at this point, as we arrive at chapter 11, the reader would assume the story of redemption has come to an end. I mean, what else do you want? Everything the, 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 the patriarchs had hoped that Israel would become, Solomon achieves. The seed of the woman has triumphed. The nations are blessed through the wisdom of Israel. Israel is faithfully following after Yahweh. And the royal priest rules with wisdom. So we can look at 1 Kings 5. We pointed this out Wednesday. A very important verse, perhaps the verse when you're considering Solomon. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal of Israel? After all, Jerusalem is the city of peace. The city of Shalom. And with peace comes rest. And Solomon says, I have come to a place of rest. David never enjoyed that. Solomon has. And we turn to chapter 11, and immediately it all comes crashing down. In an instant, in a day, as as the narrative writes it. Three things destroy Solomon I want to highlight for us this evening. The first one is the obvious one, and that is lust. Lust. And his lust is expressed in a variety of ways. Most notably here is polygamy. Now, Just to be clear, because now this is a controversial statement, the Bible condemns polygamy. Now, you'll hear plenty of people, particularly as we go in the direction of polyamory and polygamy as a nation, they will actually try to use the Bible in defense of it. But one need not go past page 2 of the Bible to see that this is condemned. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Notice there, there is one man, one woman. That is monogamy. This is affirmed by both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament. So the Bible condemns polygamy by fiat. Anything that doesn't fit within that definition is unrecognizable in terms of marriage. You can call it marriage, but it isn't biblical marriage. It also condemns it antidotally, which you'll get a lot of people come and say as well. You know, all the patriarchs had multiple wives. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph did, Moses did, David certainly did, Solomon here. They all did. Therefore, it must be uh, morally okay. And this is where we confuse 
description with prescription. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are described I wouldn't recommend we necessarily put into practice. You know, like gouging out the eyes of our enemies. I don't think we should try that as, as public policy, right? It's in the Bible. Well, it must be okay. No, no, that, that's, that's, not, that's not how we read the Bible. There's a difference between description and prescription. And in the description of polygamy in the Bible, it is always bad news. In fact, the first polygamist, really he's a bigamist, is, is he, he is the descendant of Cain, and he's seven times as bad as Cain. It's Lamech in Genesis 5. So too, when you look at Abraham, was having multiple partners a good thing for Abraham? Ask Hagar. You remember the story of Abraham and Hagar is the opposite story of the Jewish slaves. Abraham goes to Egypt and, steal, and, and steals someone and turns them into a slave in Canaan. They then flee. That's the story of Israel, who is turned into slaves in Egypt, who must then flee. Right? That's not a good thing. Same can be said of, say, Jacob, who had, remember, he really had four wives. He had his two wives as a result of his, of, of, of his father-in-law deceiving him. But with those two wives came two additional servants who bore him children. He essentially had four wives. You cannot read the story of Jacob and say, clearly, God thinks this is a great idea. Not to mention David, his downfall. And then here is Solomon. It is very clear. His lust for women in both marriage and outside of marriage is his downfall. Solomon's harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines is by far the largest in the Bible, particularly among the Jewish kings. The next largest harem belonged to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who had, in comparison, 18 wives and 60 concubines. Still way, way, way too many because it's larger than one but significantly less than what his father had. David, in comparison, had 15 wives and multiple concubines. One of his wives was a Gentile. And let's not forget, his first wife had a father who tried to kill him. None of these men, Solomon, David, Rehoboam, and others, none of these men finished well. As wise as Solomon was, and as beautiful as his Song of Songs is, his arrangements with endless women proved to be fatal, but ultimately proved to be foolish. It's incredible, isn't it? How wise and powerful a man can become. How foolish he becomes before women. And one can just think of any point in American or, or, or human history, and there are countless examples of that. Solomon certainly fits within that mold. Secondly, syncretism. The Bible repeatedly warns the people of God of compromising the sanctity of marriage with syncretism. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 7 says, you shall not intermarry with them, that is the Canaanites, Given your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and you would be destroyed uh, uh, quickly. Marrying spouses of idolatrous faith is fatal in the Bible. We looked at a great example of that several weeks ago, the story of Samson. Samson's great downfall is what? Lust and syncretism. 
That is, he believes that, well, I have my faith and they have their faith. So long as we love each other, whatever that means, we can all light a candle, sing the Coca-Cola theme song, live happily ever after. And what you find is that, that, that the root of intimacy is faith. What you believe about the ultimate is the most important thing about your marriage. Same thing happens in Nehemiah chapter 13. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nonetheless, foreign women made him sin. You see there where he puts together lust on the one hand and syncretism on the other, where his lust for women, among other things, drives him to, to compromise here and there, particularly in his home, and in his relationships, and eventually he is the one who surrendered his faith. The thinking often goes that, that if we can enter into a romantic relationship, then uh, they will join my faith. I've been in ministry long enough, I was in youth ministry certainly long enough to see that rarely if ever happens. I've yet to find the verse in the Bible that says salvation or evangelism is best done by fornication. I'm still looking for that verse. Maybe you can find it. But I don't think it's there. As wise as he might have been, he foolishly thought he could tolerate idolatry in others without it affecting himself. What started out as tolerating the sins of others quickly became his own sin. That is the way of syncretism. That is the way of small compromises. What's the old saying? Those who play with fire get burned. That's what Solomon does here. He thinks he can put his own guards up and that will be sufficient to keep idolatry away. But when you flirt with idolatry, you will soon find in bed with it. By the way, Paul gives the same warning in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Can I just add a little footnote there? Because I feel like having grown up in the South, it seems like something we, we have to talk about. That does not mean racially uh, unequally yoked. You won't find that in the Bible. That is not race, it is faith. Do not be by faith unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? There is nothing more important to one's relationship than that of faith. It will be a blessing or it will be our downfall. So he doesn't finish well because he welcomes into his heart idolatry. Thirdly and finally, we can call this worldly wisdom. By the way, worldly wisdom I steal from um, John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, how dare you? You need to fix that this week. You could read it for free online. Um, but worldly wisdom, it's the allegory you really got to read. It's excellent. Christian comes across worldly wisdom pretty early on. But the motivation behind the thousand women was, is not exclusively due to his insatiable lust. I do think that's part of it. After all, we, we see in the text there, uh, there at the end of verse 2, I believe it is, Solomon clung to these in love. Clearly, there is lust there. I don't think he loved 1,000 women the way God expects us to love one woman. Is, 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 is that fair to say? I mean, right? I mean, think about it. I, I grew up where I had 1,000 friends. I didn't have like close friends. I had a few. 
But then, like, whereas my wife and others in her family had like three friends and they were very close. Right. And there, there is a difference. And neither one of them is right or wrong necessarily. So I don't think Solomon loved deeply 1000 women. I don't think he knew all their names, frankly. Like, I bet you have Facebook friends. You met them one time. So you added them as a Facebook friend. You don't know anything about them anymore. Like 10 years ago. Right? I've got a few of those. Like, I wish them happy birthday. Like, we met at some point, some convention, some outreach, side of the street. May the Lord's blessing be upon you. I don't remember you. You were a nice guy, I guess, right? So I don't think he, he really loved them. Yet, that's the text, right? He clung to them in, in love. So yes, there was an insatiable lust that he has, which is typical among men in particular. But I think what is driving much of this it's politics. It's politics. Throughout much of history, marriage was economical. It was social. It was political. Who you married was a sign of influence and wealth or gave you an escape out of poverty. Among monarchs, it secured alliances and peace treaties. I've told you all before, I, I find the tutors, uh, the English tutors, just fascinating. Really, really just fascinating. And Henry VII and VIII are probably, probably my, my range. Um, and then later, James I of England, James V of Scotland, I find quite fascinating. But probably my favorite character is Mary, Queen of Scots. That, we could talk about her, but we would be here all day. But one character that, that I find fascinating is um, Catherine of Aragon, who was, when she was a little girl was pledged to be married to the heir of the English throne, a young man by the name of Prince Arthur. He was the firstborn son of Henry VII. Now, they are pledged to be married as children, never have met. One is, is around France, the other, of course, in England. They've never met. They, 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 I believe they had seen portraits of each other, but not like iPhone 13 portraits, okay? We're talking about some dude sat down and painted it, right? And, and, and then, like, your judgment of them is based off of that, that portrait. Like, if they hired me to do your portrait, none of us would ever be married. Let's just be honest, right? I mean, who you pick is sort of a big decision, okay? So when she comes of age, she gets shipped literally all the way over to England where she is going to be quickly officially married, and a massive wedding and uh, start the next line of king and queen. The problem is shortly after their, their marriage, Prince Arthur died of the sweating sickness. He died. So she's left there. She, she, she's not pregnant. She has no children, so thus no heir. And a lot of people don't know what to do with her, right? She, she's the next queen whose husband just died. She's not even queen yet. She's just a princess. Does she go back? And her value has dropped now that she was previously married. It was a huge issue in England. She ends up managing to marry the now heir of England, and that is Henry VIII, who we know that relationship didn't last as long as maybe she had hoped. But the point is, is that at this time and throughout much of history, marriage was as much political as it was anything else. Nowadays, we grow up singing first comes love, then comes marriage for the monarchs. And throughout much of history, it's more like first comes the pledges and alliances, then comes the marriage, right? Very different. So the nations that Solomon enters into treaties with are numerous 
And that is good news, right? He can say, I am at rest, I am at peace in the city of peace, and that is demonstrated in all of these arrangements with women. Think about it. If your daughter is in the next town over, are you at least going to have tried diplomacy before you attack? Of course you are. Pretty simple. After all, your grandchildren are over there. You're going to think before you, you attack. So marriage becomes a political tool. And so what we see here is through these marriage arrangements, Solomon has accomplished great diplomacy. Look at these nations. Moab was a constant nuisance. Remember, Moab and Ammon were, are the uh, uh, incestuous sons of Lot and his daughters. The Ammonites and Edomites were both persistent enemies, but they're, they're, they're not now. The same could be said of Sidon, the Hittites, everything. David fought all of these people. And here Solomon says, they're leaving us alone. And I've sealed the deal through these political arrangements of marriages. And this is why we call this worldly wisdom. Solomon thinks he has secured peace. But he hasn't. These alliances are... Uh, temporary at best, because the minute he dies, these alliances end. And it isn't long before these are the nations who will then invade all of his descendants. Remember, God had promised Israel that he would protect them and defeat their enemies. Solomon, as wise as he was, foolishly believed his diplomacy was better than the wisdom of God. We do the same thing today, don't we? Well, what are some points of application and then then we can call it a night? Solomon, like other biblical heroes, reminds us why finishing well is so important. Jesus tells an interesting parable. In Matthew 21, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first one, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not, but eventually did go do it. He went to the other son, he, he said the same. He said, I will go, but he did not. Which of the two did the will of the father? That, that's the question, right? The answer is, of course, first, the one who resisted but ultimately obeyed rather than the one who gave lip service but still didn't obey. Now, this parable, and we looked at it um, last year in some detail, applies to tax collectors and sinners. They initially said, we will not go into the kingdom, but they did. They embraced the Messiah. Whereas the Pharisees are those who said, we are the religious people, we'll do whatever it is God will have us to do, we believe Messiah, but ultimately didn't. But at the same time, there is this simple principle of finishing well. And finishing well is the expectation of the believer. It is also a warning to us all. At the end of his life, I didn't put it up here, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and you can almost get a hint of depression might be too strong of a word, although I think you can get some points of depression out of 2 Timothy 4. And you remember what he says is, is, is he, he gives a list of what are real successes. Alexander the coppersmith and a bunch of others, right? People he's interacted with, people who claim to believe in Christ, that he led to Christ. All these great examples of ministers and members alike. And then many of them, he, he, he says, this person has fallen away. This person has done me great harm. You've got to be careful around this person over here. But you, Timothy, finish well. It is a warning to us all. Jesus also told the parable of the soils. Most landed among good soil and grew, 
But only one of the soils grew long term. So too many believers start off well, but fail to finish. If every person who ever walked the aisle, got baptized, and joined this church was still faithful to the gospel, what sort of health would our churches across this community be in? Let me give you just three obstacles to to finishing well. We see in this text and we see even beyond it. The first obstacle is unrepented sin. Sin metastasizes. Left unaddressed, it will consume us and destroy us. Unrepentant sin will prevent us from finishing well. Secondly, suffering. I've seen many who simply surrender because of suffering. It is vital we have a good theology of suffering before the day comes. Suffering is not the absence of God. It is an opportunity to grow in intimacy with God. Thirdly, inconsistency. Does the last two years prove that, and do we need to go any more details? It's amazing, isn't it, how when we were consistent in our worship, we were growing in our faith. But when plague came, we became inconsistent in our worship. And how difficult it is to get those who are so active to become active again. How many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, sort of had to make ourselves those first few weeks when we started open again? Then we had to close, and then we opened again, then we had to close, right? How frustrating all that was. When we become ambivalent about our Christian journey, we will fail to continue our Christian journey. And that is the great error of COVID. It was far too many of us. Our Christian journey was found exclusively at the church, and we had not taken it home with us, with the spiritual disciplines, so that when the community was not as involved as it had been consistently, we didn't have the spiritual disciplines to fall on. We hadn't been growing as disciples. Three great obstacles to finishing well. Well, many of you all probably know who this cat is, right? This hortus is, right? That is the 2022 Kentucky Derby winner, Rich Strike. And will go down as one of the better uh, Kentucky Derbies in least recent history. I think that's fair to say. It's exciting that the underdog, we, we could call him uh, St. Peter's if you want to. The underdog, right, beat, beat the big dogs, the David beat Goliath, right? It's exciting. But it isn't just that the, the, the one that we didn't think would win ended up winning. It's how he ended up winning that we love so much. I love the aerial camera, right? Where, where they put the arrows on. It says, here's the one everyone thought was going to win. Here's the one no one thought was going to win. And you know, halfway through the race, they're on opposite ends. One is in near the front. The other one is near the back. But as it goes, particularly down the stretch, you can see the lanes open up, takes advantage of his opportunities. Before long, he's right there in the front. No one noticed a live rich strike until really the finish line because he was always in the back. And the reason we love this race so much is because it reminds us what matters is not how you start. It's how you finish. So too, where you are right now does not necessarily determine where and how you will finish. Maybe things are going well and you're growing in your faith. That is good news. 
Keep pursuing Christ. Maybe you're struggling. The good news is there is still grace for you. Keep pursuing Christ. What we want to hear on that day of judgments, when the sheep and the goats are separated, is for the Father to look us in the eyes and simply say, well done, good and faithful servants. Isn't that what Paul said as we referenced earlier in 2 Timothy? I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Here he is on the brink of execution. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. One of the things I love about running so much is no one really cares that much about your time. People are first and foremost impressed if you finish it. I have fought the good fight. It's a boxing reference. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord of the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't that what we want? I pray that each and every one of us, here and even beyond, we look at Solomon and we see not what he did, but a mirror that makes us reflect on if we are not careful and consistent in our faith, what could become our story. May you, may I, when they write our obituary, let it simply say, he finished well. When Ruth Graham was buried, you need to go see her tombstone. You know what it says? Something like, no longer under construction, or I think it says construction complete. Thank you for your patience. Let's go to Lord and pray. Our Father, thank you.